Welcome to the Recon Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Recon member Viking in London about being sober and about how such a profound change, having a real clear head, has led to discovering and enjoying real clear fetish. Please enjoy the episode. So good morning, my peeps, my people. Um, you know, I often have a little backstory about how some of these topics come about. So let me tell you why we're talking about real Claire fetish today. Right now, I'm actually away in Hamburg. And a few days ago, I had brunch with a good friend I've known for about 25 years. And he told me that he had become sober, which is quite interesting because from the time when I knew him, it was normally quite often when we, you know, shared a room together for me to come home at the end of the night and he'd be passed out on the floor. So this was really quite profound for me. And we had a very lengthy discussion um, about uh, how he dealt with alcohol and substance abuse, misuse uh, for over a number of years. And, you know, I think at some point, maybe he thought he'd never survive it. Uh, and Kamal, on the other hand, uh, being now so much more clear-headed and grounded. And this is not just in his professional life or his everyday life, but also discovering what it meant for his sex life to be clear-headed. And um, he also talked about the importance of continuing with things like his AA meetings. Um, and having this discussion with Jerry reminded me of a recent discussion I'd had only a few weeks ago with uh, Ralph, Recon member Viking in London, about his early battle with substances and going through the same thing. And I did an Instagram live chat with Ralph a few weeks ago. Some of you may have seen it. If you haven't, you can actually go to the Real Claire Fetish uh, page either on Twitter or Instagram, and it's still there. So you can actually watch our chat. Um, and... You know, apart from also Ralph, I also had a really good chat with another friend, Nick, also about being sober for about 20 years. And they know each other quite well. You know, there's a really interesting and fun, real clear head community uh, going around, which I know that a lot of you are quite aware of. And some of you may find it quite surprising, but it's there. And I remember Nick also telling me about, you know, still attending AA meetings quite regularly and having support and help and also giving some help to his sober brothers. Um, in this season of the Recon podcast, um, I'm going to be talking with Ralph about it. In season one of the Recon Podcast, I had a really good talk with my good friend, the late David Stewart, that some of you may know very well, about chemsex and how substance misuse, which was the word that he loved using rather than abuse and putting such a negative spin on it, um, you know, how substance misuse affected the daily life, professional life, the sex lives, and far too many, you know, um, the personal life of people on the scene. Uh, David was a really strong advocate for the LD, uh, LGBTQI plus community and was also very passionate about helping people to understand their substance misuse, managing it and getting through it. After meeting up with my friend Jerry at the weekend and having a similar discussion with him, that kind of highlighted for me the need to bring this discussion to the forefront now. And I just thought, okay, the time couldn't be more clearer. You know, there was, couldn't be a clearer sign from the gods.
Um, so first of all, let's try to understand what real Claire fetish means. And by that, I mean, um, I think generally for me, it would be, you know, Claire headed, uh, Claire fetish, Claire play, Claire sex, Claire kink, a Claire life. I think there are so many aspects that you can carry this into. Um, most of you will know from listening to previous episodes of the podcast that I'm not a cams user. I never have been, um, you know, I'm not the guy who's into the H and H, the high and horny or the P and P party and play. And I might've mentioned it before that I've spoken to people on apps, you know, quite a few more people on the yellow pages, if you know what I mean, hint, hint, um, who literally told me, you know, oh my God, you're like boring and old fashioned, uh, because I prefer to play sober. And I found it really interesting that I was judged so harshly for, um, choosing to be sober in my, you know, in my sex life. Um, and by this, I just mean, you know, being clear headed and alert. And I think for me, that would be even more present than I would be, you know, rather than the vision I think many people have of laying back and they're so often to the land of ecstasy, their eyes roll back into their heads. You know, I want to be like present at the here and the now. I want to be alert and know what's happening. And I don't want to have to think about anything else about who I'm with and what we're doing at that time. Um, you know, and I'll be the first person to admit that it's not very easy at all to not even be the smallest bit judgmental when, you know, this is someone's response to being sober. And the question of to party or not to party can often be a determining factor when it comes to actually connecting with the guys we want to hook up with. It's something I think some people just maybe take for granted. But for other people, this is really prominent for them. They want to know whether you do or not, because this also signifies the headspace that you're in when this play is about to begin. Um, you know, and I'm guessing if you're sober, you know, I think one of the questions that, you know, I would ask is, you know, do you give in to the pressure just because the guy is so fucking hot that you do anything to get into his knickers? And I'm sure there are people who probably have, you know, not everyone's always so strong enough to know when that hot guy is naked in front of you or, you know, you're on your back or his schlong comes out of his pants, you know, you're on your knees in a heartbeat going, yes, daddy, give it to me all been there. Um, okay, so I've rambled on for quite a bit, but I think you get the gist of where this conversation will be heading today. So let's get our guest on here to give his thoughts. Please welcome Raf Viking in London to the podcast. Ralph, welcome. Thank uh, you for having me on. Thank you for joining us. So I want to circle back to the real Claire Fetish aspect a little bit later on. But first, Ralph, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, well, my name is Ralph. Uh, I go by pronouns he, him. Um, I'm originally from Denmark, hence the name Viking in London. Um, I also used to go under the profile name Butcher's Dog in the past. Um, but the puppy side of me kind of, I outgrew it, so I changed the name. Um, I live in London. I've been here for coming up to 13 years. Um, and yeah, my background is I started doing fetish when I was 22, 23. Um, I'm a previous title holder. I hold the title of Mr. Lever Denmark 2008 and Mr. Lever Europe 2008, which I'm still immensely proud of. But in God, it's, it's starting to feel very long ago. Um, and I moved here. I was very, very green and 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 and, and kind of maybe quite naive to 
the party scene over here, uh, I would say. Um, I started dabbling in drug taking when I moved here more. Um, I was I had a very strong opinion what drug taking was and what type of people that would do it uh, when I was younger. But like with everything else is you try a little bit, then you kind of your boundaries push and your opinions change and um, you meet different people and it's like, oh, you tried this, didn't you try that? Um, and slowly it turned into like going out. It was definitely something that had to happen for me to enjoy my time out was drug taking or heavy drinking. Um, it definitely became even worse with the easy access through apps. Um, as you mentioned already, the certain yellow ones. Um, uh, so it, it's just the access became really easy and it slowly and slowly. Uh, addiction doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. It slowly creeps up on you. And I did not see it coming. I did not see it happen. I always had a very strong opinion, um, a wrong opinion, but strong opinion that addicts were weak willed and they, why couldn't they just stop? And this is something I've had to look at hard on myself as well, because I've realized it's not a question about just stopping. It is a question about changing everything to make your life work again. I'm going to come back to that point a little bit later on as well. That's something I want to dig into a little bit. Um, let me ask you, let me ask you another question, because you mentioned also that you were a title holder. And I think I remember the time when you were the 2008 Mr. Leather Denmark. And I'm probably sure the first time I met you might have probably been in Berlin at the Mr. Leather Europe. Because, uh, you know, I get around. I was there that year as well. <laughs> and, you know, winning a title can also lead you in so many paths and directions you know it can open doors and lead you to different types of experiences and you know we often hear people talk about how the title holder kind of like gives them access to this uh realm of sexual play and meeting people and other experiences and did you find that having the title um presented a lot more temptation for you uh, to be honest, no, not at the time, because at the time I was the title holder, I lived in Denmark, and this is before my drug taking. Yeah. Uh, when I was when I competed at IML, International Mr. Lever, I was at a house party where I was offered drugs, but at that time, like I mentioned, I had a very, very much a. a, a a strong view that that is definitely going to lead me towards being homeless and um, and so on and so forth. So I was very much like, no, I don't do stuff like that um, yeah. at the time. So um, no, as a title holder, no. It's, to be honest, people would quite be surprised when you're a title holder <laughs> and drugs and so on. It's not really something that happens because a lot of there is there is you feel a little bit like all the time. We always get told I'm a title holder. I get laid. No, that doesn't happen. <laughs> it, it does not happen uh, when you have that sash sash on. On it's almost like a repellent. Um, uh, I, I wish it was tons and tons of sex when you're a title holder it's not 
It's really isn't. Over the years, I've been part of a number of conversations where guys have talked about not having had any experience um, with being introduced to substances to their sex life until they, one, got into fetish or two, got into London. And why do you think that might be? You know, personally, I, like I mentioned before, I love my sober sex and I want the guy I'm playing with to be 100% aware of what kind of pleasure we're having. What do you think it, it is specifically about one kinks sex, kinky sex that might lead people to start introducing substances? And the second part of that question I'd like you to maybe think about or see if you can dig into is what is it, do you think it might be about what happens or how people are here in London that might lead to this? It's a double-sided question, I know. Yeah, I feel like I can't remember everything you just said there. Um, it's, it's, it's a weird one because I don't necessarily, yes, I deal with the sober aspect of kink sex and, and that is my activism. This is what I, I do a lot of work around in, but chem sex i always kind of when people have uh, problems around drug taking and i talk to them and we're talking about kink i always kind of ask the question did you have kink before drugs or did you have kink whilst you were on drugs because that also defines are you actually into these things because they might not be because there's definitely things i've done on drugs i'm not into it just seems like a really fucking good idea at the time uh, or you're just caught up in the moment, especially if you're high. Um, so it, 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 fetish is a weird one when it comes to drug taking because there is that two sides to it. For me, fetish was a part of my life before drug taking, absolutely a part of my life, and it's always been a part of my life. My interest in leather started when I was 13. Wow. So, yeah. so it, it, it started very early on. Um, what it's what is it about London? I do you know what I've I've seen it time and time again. People move in, they get chewed up and spit out, and then they leave. Yeah, and London does that. It, if if you allow London to do that, it will, and that happens a lot. I think it's something that probably very likely happens in several other big cities I could mention as well. And maybe because this is our home base, you know, we hear about it so much more um, in London than we would do in other places, but also, you know, like traveling around to events. If I'm in San Francisco or LA or Chicago, New York, Sydney, Madrid, I hear the same things, the same stories over and over again. There is something about big city life um, that draws people in, um, you know, it's almost like, they're being hypnotized and drawn into this wonderful, incredible, you know, incredible world of these amazing experiences. And then they get trapped, they get lost and they can't get out and they don't know what to do. Um, and I'm guessing a part of the thing is, is sometimes people aren't even aware that they actually may have developed a problem or that they have developed an issue. And was there a profound moment for you when you maybe realized that you may have had a, substance misuse problem oh yeah it's very clear i can even give you the date uh <laughs> 13th of october 19 uh, um, 2016 fantastic um, that was my uh, first drug psychosis yeah um which um on it was my birthday on the 8th and um 
at that point, I was starting to address some of the drug issues, but I hadn't really put a name to it, and I definitely wasn't an addict. I, de- I wouldn't want to say that word because it was dirty and it was shameful and, and all that. So I was slowly I, – I talked with people at my uh, local clinic. I kind of addressed maybe through Antidote here in London, um, but I would not really put a name on it as being a massive problem. Um, but I had a break from drug taking, but then my birthday happened, and then I went on a four-day bender with no sleep, uh, which culminated on the 13th with being so fatigued that I went into a drug psychosis where – I thought my phone was hacked. I thought people were trying to overdose me. I thought there was someone in the flat next door to me trying to get in. I thought the house was surrounded by police or nurses. And I had my mom on the phone at two in the morning raving like a lunatic. That was how she found out I had a drug problem. Not the best way to tell your mom you have a drug problem. Oh, my God. It sounds absolutely terrifying. I, I had the ambulance and the police. Well, I had the police out first. Didn't trust them because I thought they were a part of it. And then we got an ambulance out. And I got driven, driven to A&E because they needed to make sure I didn't get a heart attack. I'm glad you mentioned your mom on the other end of the line, because I know that many people, sometimes it happens and they don't know what to do. And Mm. if you don't have, you know, like friends or family that are around or nearby, that can help you. You know, sometimes we know that this can go left wheel. It can all go wrong very quickly. I mean, did you have intervention, any kind of intervention from like friends and other members of your family? Or how important do you think that, you know, intervention from people who love us um, will be when this kind of thing happens. The, the problem with the like intervention in itself, we, we kind of, when we think intervention and we think drug taking, we think about uh, five members of the family, some near friends and you meet up and we're here to talk to you and we're really worried about you and so on. To be honest, in most cases, if you do that, they'll run for the hills or it'll yeah. make it worse. Interventions is an American TV series things that's been invented and it's never good for anything. Um, that being said, it might put a, a seed in someone's brain to kind of address something, but it is not a good idea in, in general to do interventions. I never really had an intervention. I think the, probably the, the biggest intervention I've had was a friend of mine uh, yet again, on a third time on a calm down where I tell, I'm crying on his sofa telling, I don't want to do this anymore, blah, 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 blah. Really, the boy who cried wolf, um, where he kind of went, well, Ralph, maybe you should have something else in your life than going out. And that's when I signed up to be a part of the London Gay Men's Chorus, which I have now sung with since 2016. Um, yeah. That was the year I had my drug psychosis, but I was a member of them. And that's also how I found my first... Um, well, friend who was also an addict who took me to my first meeting. Um, so if I hadn't had the chorus, I'm not sure where I would be at now. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I know we've heard from other people as well that you know very often the cases on the previous part, uh, a previous podcast, um, we had another guest who also mentioned something very the same about actually having something else in your life to replace it, and this was also a really good. Uh, step in actually getting through and getting over 
uh, and actually becoming more clear headed and entering a clear state of mind. Um, I, you mentioned something else before, and I want to touch on this as well. And, and I know how difficult this one is from having, uh, one or two other family members and at least, uh, another one or two ex, um, partners who've also struggled, um, Mm -hmm. with substance misuse. And I think it's very naive and maybe it's usually said just out of ignorance. People just don't know any better when people say, why don't you just quit? And I'm glad that you mentioned it before because we know that it's not easy, you know? Um, and I think people don't necessarily understand why it's not easy to just quit. You know, it's like telling someone to just stop eating, you know, just, you know, it's, it's not easy. And why do you think it's not easy? Like in your experience, why do you think it was not easy to just quit? If, if someone's listening to this, and hopefully there are, and they get something out of it, but if they have that view and kind of like, why can't you just stop? I will advise them to put their phone down and walk away from it for a couple of hours and see how they feel. Most people have a phone addiction. I definitely do. Um, I get an itch if I'm not looking at my phone. And that's an addiction. That it's if... And especially with social media, we, we can care. If something turns into something that's a negative in your life, that's normally something you have to look at. And it can be anything. Um, I also probably have a horrible sugar addiction, but I think most people do as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm honest about it and I'm aware of it. And it's, it's about looking at things that's having negative impacts in your life. I definitely have weeks where if social media takes too much and it giving me anxiety, I will put it away. I need to keep my mental health, but that's because I've now been through these things and I kind of know as someone who hasn't dealt with addiction that's affected them in a, such a negative manner, either by money, house, job, um, mental health, all that. It's hard to understand. And it's, it's, or someone who might be in addiction, they're just not aware of it. There's, especially on the gay scene or the LGBTQ plus scene, because we have disposable income and um, access, access, easy access to a lot of things, um, a lot of addicts on our scene are high functioning. So they don't necessarily see anything wrong with it, especially with my drug taking. I was introduced to drugs and there's no blame in anyone who introduced me into drugs. I will point that out. I never blamed anyone to for anything when, when it came to that, because there's no way of knowing which direction you will go with drug taking. That's yeah. the thing. You have to be wary of that. Um, but it, it just happens. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, I lost my train of thought there. We're talking about, you know, advising or chatting to people about why it's not easy to just quit. And I would ask you, you know, if someone says, you know, uh, I'd love to quit, what's your response to them? Be gentle with yourself. It's no, no one's expecting you to quit overnight. That uh, to, to be honest, some drugs... Uh, you can't quit overnight, especially if you have a physical dependency. It would be dangerous. Um, so it's it's for for me. I would probably ask what drug are you addicted to, 
are you physically addicted or are you mentally addicted? Um, because mental addiction is difficult, but it's not life-threatening if you go cold turkey. But if you're physically addicted, especially with, if we talk about drugs like GHB or GBL, which are dangerous, um, if not done correctly, um, if you just stop from one day to the other, you'll die. And that's the end of it. Or you'll definitely end up in hospital. Um, so it's, it's, it's very important if anyone approaches you and talks about, oh, I want to stop this. It's about getting the background knowledge before you go, well, I'll help you stop. We need, I need the information of what's going on and what are you taking? How often is it happening? Um, so I would, I would inquire. I, I would, I would be compassionate because people have shown me compassion and it's, it's, it's my people like David Stewart that started the conversation. Um, yeah. You touched on a really good point there talking about mental health mm -hmm. and you know how it just seemed really chaotic when you had your, you know, your break and do you think your mental health has had long-term suffering effects from your period of substance misuse? When I stopped the drug taking, there's one thing they don't really tell you when you stop is all your emotions come back because you've spent years and years and years numbing them with drug taking and alcohol and stuff like that. So when you stop taking them, you start feeling shit. Uh, and it doesn't come in an orderly fashion. From um, one moment, you'll be extremely sad. And then next moment, you'll be extremely angry. And then you have euphoric callbacks from drug taking. And it's really fucking hard. And that's that's why it's, it's hard, especially in the first three months. And it's going to sound really weird when you stop doing drugs, especially if you've done it for a long period of time, you'll feel loss you'll feel grief a little bit like losing a part of yourself. Um, so that is something you have to address. Uh, I definitely felt grief because I had to leave a part of my life behind. Um, I didn't have to change everything, but I definitely have to change a lot of things. Um, so there was a, a lot of anger. Why can't I still do this? Why can't I just say fuck it and go out and uh, go on three-day benders. But I can't because my mental health wouldn't allow me because the calm downs were getting worse and worse and worse. And if the drugs weren't going to kill me, I would end up in such a bad state, I would commit suicide. I luckily was never that far down. Um, I think I it maybe crossed my mind for five minutes on a calm down, but it never felt like that's a solution. So I'm very lucky. I'm very, very lucky that I stopped when I did because it was definitely going in a direction like that. Um, I'm glad that the psychosis scared me enough to make the change. Um, and it still scares me. That situation, even now knowing it wasn't real, it is definitely real to me. And there is definitely some trauma there from it. <laughs> 
Um, before we go into a little break, I have one more question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you wrote an article for us back in 2018 when you were still under the profile Butcher's Dog. Mm-hmm. And you talked about this quite a bit and about your experiences and also coming into uh, the next part of your life. Um, was it, do you think good for your mental health to be able to write this article and talk about it? What did talking about it openly do for you? What did it mean for you? It felt like a natural step. Uh, I've gotten to a point um, in my recovery, I think, uh, yeah, I would have been a year in sober. It was kind of my choice the first year to kind of keep it on the down low, what was going on, what I was doing why I was doing the things I was doing, but I kind of reached that one year point. And I, on a couple of occasions, got told that as a recovering addict, especially when it's so connected to my sex drive and fetish stuff, that I should give it up. I'm a very stubborn person, and I don't take that very (laughs) lightly. And it also comes back to the whole, like, when did you discover fetish? I had fetish before drug taking, and I knew I could get it back, but it would take work. Um, Because just imagine if you put rubber on or smell leather, and your brain automatically goes to drug taking, that's heartbreaking for a fetishist. And it was heartbreaking for me. It felt like I had a massive Achilles heel hanging in my closet. I couldn't approach. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's when, when I, when I wrote that article, I, I, I did it for me, but I also did it for whoever might listen or read it and go, shit, I'm not the only one. Um, and trust me. Uh, I didn't know precisely when you posted the article, but I definitely knew my inbox was all of a sudden very full. Um, and the response was immense. And funny enough, there was someone who wrote to me, I'm not ready yet, but reading your article just gave me that little glimmer of hope that I might be able to change this and I might be able to turn it around. And do you know what? That made it worth putting it out there because a lot of people would go, why would you want to put it out there? It's something private and so on. Yes, of course it's private, but I'm also aware not enough fetish men talk about this. And all of a sudden it's like, if I'd had someone in the fetish community talking about this openly, like I am in my first year, I wouldn't have felt so lost and scared that I might lose my fetish side. That is fantastic. And on that, we're going to take a short little break. And when we get back from this break, we will dig even deeper into why real Claire fetish. We'll be right back. Need something tight and shiny for a special event? Want ideas for your next session? At Regulation, we're stocking thousands of products, including leather, rubber, toys, electro, restraints, and playroom furniture. Now shipping worldwide, or get free UK shipping when you spend over £25. Visit our London store or shop online at regulation.co.uk. Regulation. Kink. Delivered. 
So welcome back from your little break. We are now back here talking with the lovely Ralph Viking in London about Real Color Fetish. And just before the break, we were talking to him about the article he had written for us back in 2018 and what kind of effect that had on him. And I know that now, Ralph, you've uh, started this other group and you've completely like turned the pages, like flip, you're like on a new book, not even a new chapter. You're in, you're in a new book. Um, and can you tell us why real Claire fetish? Yeah, I, I, do you know what? It was, it was weird. A little, little bit like I mentioned, I didn't have any, um, role models when it came to fetish and being sober. If you look over to the stage, there's so many proud, openly fetish sober men there. And, and the scene is huge. They even have 12-step meetings at IML. I wasn't aware of that at all. Yeah. Um, I actually made some I, notes to talk about that too. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I kind of saw a gap in, at least online, for some sort of support. Um, so in in... Yeah, it would be 2000 and yeah, it would turn, turn free the other week um, in January. So in 2018, I set up the group. I kind of had the concept in my head and I'm, I'm loving the fact that you're saying real clear fetish so many times and you're actually talking about being clear headed and because the slogan of the group is clear fetish, clear head. Um, it, it's, it, and the reason I use the word clear is when you refer to being sober or clean, clean sounds negative. Yeah, um, that's a word that we know has such a huge negative connotation for a lot yeah. of people. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, of course, if you're in recovery circles and you use that word, that's perfectly fine. Okay. But in a setting, clean is not necessarily the best word to use for anything, to describe anything, because there's so many negative conditions. So, well, I just went in, well, real clear, clear-headed, perfect. Um, so I set up the group on Facebook, and it's just kind of slowly grown, um, where it's an online presence for um, gay, bi, trans, and queer men um, who might be in recovery, who might not be in recovery, who might not drink, um, who might socially drink but don't like to drink whilst they're playing or do drugs and stuff like that. Everyone's kind of welcome as long as you're respectful and mindful of there will be people in the group who are in recovery and yeah. certain things that might be said will be a trigger. Um, so it's, it's, it's just to create a safe space to have heavy conversations about these type of things or just a space to go, I'm going to this party. I feel a bit unsecure. Um, I need a safety net. Who's going? I've definitely done that on, on several occasions, kind of going, I'm going to a recon party. I'll be there. Uh, is anyone else who's sober going? And do you want to meet up or at least have someone to check in with if you feel a bit triggered or, um, bit anxious about going into a space that, well, we have to admit it, there will be alcohol, definitely. And there will be drugs in the corners. And that's not something we can stop. It's just a matter of life. But we also, as fetish men, even sober fetish men, we also have to start going out again. Um, 
because it's it's a part of that aesthetic and of course some choose not to and that's perfectly fine as well so for me setting up the group was to help me help others to help myself as well yeah so there was definitely also a little bit of self-helping here uh, because there was no safe space there was no place to go to talk about these things because when it comes to fetish and sex and chem sex and recovery sex becomes really difficult to talk about because yeah. everything you kind of say is a trigger um so it, it's how do you find these people where you need to be sex positive and be able to talk about these things still but still be safe yeah so that's where the group sprung from I know from some other people I'd spoken to previously, even just casually, you know, talked about other groups and um, other organizations that had sprung up and they found some people to be a little bit preachy. They were like maybe a little too self-righteous about it and like crazy loud cheerleaders like, oh, look at me and you should be like me and, you know you're all bad for drinking and da, 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 da. And, and I know that that can be a turnoff for a lot of people. So, I mean, how did you go about, what was your strategy in your mind about, you know, when you reach out to people, how you brought them in to understanding what it is that you were trying to do with the group and also to get them to realize like, look, this is really going to be a safe space for you. Now that I've experienced much more, sex positive sober people as well um there is definitely you have one end of the spectrum where they have sworn off everything and can't be with other people who do anything at all um which is fine the thing with recovery is one size doesn't fit all and that's just the way it is I, I respect people's choices and how they want to do their recovery. I've definitely found what works for me. Um, I am completely sober. I don't partake in drugs, alcohol, or poppers. Um, I will have a non-alcoholic beer that will go up to a 0.5. For some people, that will be a tra challenge for them because they, their addiction might be rooted in alcohol or alcoholism. Mine is not alcohol alcoholism. I stopped drinking mainly because it would lead me to drugs. Um, yeah. So I feel comfortable with drinking those type of beers. In early recovery, I didn't drink those beers because I felt uncomfortable and it felt slightly triggering. Nowadays, I'm comfortable with 0 0.5 beers. If I can get a 0, 0.0, better for it, but it, I'm yeah. comfortable drinking the other type. I have to say that's also something that I've, in, on a number of occasions, found to be a little bit of a struggle, you know? Um, if I'm out with friends who are sober um, for dinner, and I'm not saying that I can't go to dinner and, you know, I'm, I'm definitely capable of having dinner with a glass of wine and I want to be respectful of, you know, um, the sober friends I might go out with. And is it right that I should feel awkward because I want to have a glass of wine? Should I feel awkward? depends on who you're with yeah um if this person is brand new off the boat getting sober yeah maybe be a bit gentle and leave the alcohol out that evening yeah. if they have 20 years of sobriety go for it they normally yeah. wouldn't mind yeah it's it's assess the situation and you know what if you feel a bit awkward talk to them about it yeah and, and see how they might feel about it 
it's it's in most cases it's like with everything sometimes you're a little bit afraid to approach the conversation but in most cases if you do you feel a hell of a lot better and yeah. in most cases if you just ask in the right way no one gets offended yeah um yeah a few weeks ago when uh, i did the instagram live with you um mm. it was really interesting to see how people were responding during our chat and how do you find people generally respond to the concept of real clear fetish do you normally get a lot of feedback um are there lots of positives are there negatives um what are the types of general things that people say when you talk about it because you know that sober is always such a very sensitive subject for a lot of people yeah it's do you know what my experience since becoming public with it i'm 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 fully aware that i'm fairly in the public eye with with this because i'm i yell it from the rooftop most of the time um but because i think it's important and it's 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 important to have um what do you call it um visibility and representation when it comes to these type of things um but in general it's been really really positive um have I had anything negative? Not particularly. I think someone might have thought I was a little up, up my own ass, but fine. When you talk a lot about a situation, certain people might have an opinion on you and I'm okay with that. That's fine. That's not, it's not the majority. So it's, it's, but in general, it's, it's always really good comments and a lot of people just keep going and keep being a good representation, representation of what, you look like when you come out on the other side of it. Has becoming sober affected your social life, your kink life, your sexual life? I mean, like I'm sure it has. I mean, do people look at you differently? What are your what's what's your experience like now? Um, do people look at me differently? They probably do. Um, the thing is, when when I walk into a room, most people probably know who I am at this point. Yeah. Um, which I'm okay with in a way, I guess. It, to be honest, I suffer with horrible social anxiety, which is ironic because I'm so much in the doing public stuff. <laughs> I um, don't believe it I'm okay for a, a minute. I'm okay in a room with people I know. Put me in a room with <laughs> no one I know, I crumble. Unless I'm doing official stuff, yeah, then okay. I'll switch that on. Then I'm fine. But, oh, I crumble in a social setting. Um, but I'm also quite honest about that because drug addiction goes hand in hand with mental health, anxiety, social anxiety, depression. And that is definitely also on my card. And it is something I've experienced becoming sober. Does fetish help me with a lot of those type of things? Absolutely. But does it also cause me anxiety? Also, absolutely. Because performance angst. Um, am I in the right setting? I, I can even give you an example. I was out on Saturday night. I looked brilliant. Well, I think I did. And the comments I got online also agreed with me. I looked brilliant. But I felt like shit. And I couldn't connect. And I felt like an imposter. And I had to leave. And I was angry with myself. Why can't I just not do that? But sometimes it just doesn't work. And sometimes I just have to go home. And that's doesn't mean I'm less of a person. It just means my head wasn't in it that night and I couldn't rely on drug taking and alcohol, which I would have done before. When this happens, um, is what is your 
process for dealing with it when it happens. The aftermath, you've gone out and you've realized that an, an anxiety has kicked in and you must leave. Mm. What is what happens to you when you when you get home? Like, what is your? Oh, you know what? It's, it's, you get home. You walk in the door. You get undressed. What do you do? How do you not walk in the door and start pulling the drawers apart, looking for something you may have hidden ten years ago? What stops you from doing that? I I think I've gotten to a point now where I don't feel at risk of that. Yeah. If it had been in maybe in my first year, yeah. Um. I, I've definitely tempted fate online. Um, yeah. Nowadays, yes, I probably have searched for sex a bit more when I come home um, as a reaction, where I don't really want to, but it's just a reaction to it. But it's definitely, drugs is not on the table. That's not what I'm looking for. It's just to switch my brain off in a way which drugs would do as well. But um, it, do I have a set plan on how I react when I have my anxiety and I have to go home? No, because sometimes anxiety blindsides you and you can't think clear. And so, yes, I, I have tools. Yes, I, I know what to do. That doesn't necessarily mean I will do that in the moment. Yeah. Um, because anxiety overshadows it any logical thinking in most cases but do you have something I, like a, do you have something like a sponsor um well no i don't have a sponsor um can you, sorry really, maybe we should can you explain to our listeners what having a sponsor is well a, a sponsor is if you do for example 12-step programs um like a lot of recovering addicts do you would have a sponsor within the program who might be a contact person or someone you can reach out to um, I personally don't do the 12-step programs anymore, um, but that's just where I'm at in life. Um, but yeah, um, so, but I have a tight-knit group of friends where I can be quite frank and honest about what's going on in my head and probably sound a bit crazy when I'm talking to them, but sometimes I just need to talk it out and then it dissipates. Yeah. Uh, and then I can also hear myself and how crazy I sometimes sound. Yeah. Um, a while back you talked um, about, you know, like drinking options. And mm. I know that it's something that you and I have talked about before. And I can remember at several events, you almost chasing me down, you know, about why don't we have these options and why aren't you thinking about people like me? And, and, you know, I, I had to you think about it for like a bit that. and then very apologetic. No, it's not. I think it was, I think you were right to chase me down. And I think you were right to not let me get away with it because it's something that people in positions like me, like as an organizer, we don't often think about. You just take it for granted that, you know, if someone comes and they're sober, they're going to drink water, orange juice or cranberry juice or a cola or something. You know, you have options, you have other things to drink, but we don't think about now that there are other more current alternatives that people might want to have. Like we now see there's more things like um, non-alcoholic beer becomes more uh, prominent. I've also seen there's now another company that makes non-alcoholic gin. Um, mm -hmm. And I know that for some people this can be good, but for some people I also have been told that that is so close 
of a mental link that it could also be a trigger for them. So they completely would prefer to stay away from it. And I think in my, yeah, I would say as a lazy excuse, that I would have never bothered to do that because I just thought, well, I'm just making the decision easier for you by maybe not having these triggers and just leaving you with juice, water and everything else. Not even thinking about the other triggers that would be in place because you have ventured to come into this event space from the start and coming in could be a trigger walking in and seeing people standing around drinking and smoking and laughing and having fun could be other triggers and these are the things that we don't very often think about and we should so i'm really sorry that i'd never thought about it to this degree before but i'm also again very happy that you literally chased me down about it um and really made me think um, you know, it's now one of the things when we're looking at other venues for events, it's one of the things I constantly try to ask them. Do you also sell, you know, other types of non-alcoholic beverages? Because we have people who come in who I know are sober and some are very good friends of mine. And I want them to have other options and to feel comfortable like they can come in and not be stuck or not to feel like they're being squeezed as a, as a second citizen, you know, event goer because they don't drink. And hopefully we don't, you know, we don't want anyone to feel like they're on the outside, you know, just because I, I also had a period in my life where I was sober for two years when I was living in New York, people thought I was doing drugs because I didn't drink alcohol. I'm like, no, I don't do drugs. And I didn't drink alcohol for two years. I always had a bottle of water, which led to something really crazy because people then always thought I was a drug dealer because I only drank water. And so we have these very naive and a little bit fucked up ideas about what people's lives are like because they are sober. And, and often we know it's not as bad and it takes people like you and like my wonderful friend, uh, Nick, who have these really strong voices in these platforms to get out and to poke the people like me and remind us like, Hey, you have more work to do here. You're, you're not done yet. Um, you know, you can actually help a lot more than you may be doing already. But it's, 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 it's that thing of if, it, if that's not your lived experience, you wouldn't think about it. Um, yeah. I, I definitely, um, I've now um, had yesterday, I was poking at an event. I'm not going to mention what it is or where it is, but the name was slightly problematic. It involved the word addiction in it. Yeah. For a fetish event. Um, and the organizers probably no malice intent but it just has a lot of negatives and i also know this clothing brands like addiction that uses that in their branding but it, looking at it it is a bit because addiction or anything or um alcoholism you wouldn't use that in promotion of anything but but addiction has become this kind of you can put on stuff and then it's a bit edgy and i was just like no if you if you google addiction it will come up with so many bad things and if you look up the um the term or the terminology of it it is using something that has a negative impact on your life repeatedly and that's yeah. what an addiction is so using it in any form of branding is is not a great move um so well, I know the organizers probably didn't think about that because that's not their reality. That's not their lived experience. That's one of the things with also, we mentioned the non-alcoholic drinks. Yes, of course, there will be people who wouldn't touch them. 
there is definitely also a big group of recovery people who will think non-alcoholic drinks are for non-alcoholics, which is a fair point. I am not an alcoholic, so I yeah. can engage with them, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, I've had friends who can do non-alcoholic gin, but won't touch the non-alcoholic beer because that was their drink of choice. Yeah. So it it's from person to person how they might react to a selection of drinks. But then you also have the opposite where I was in a bar in Paris and I asked for a non-alcoholic beer and the bartender more or less turned his nose up at me. He's like, what is that? He didn't even know non-alcoholic beer existed. Wow, crazy. It's that <laughs> crazy sometimes where it, it's, it's about making everyone feeling welcome in that environment. But then we're talking about triggers and we're talking about non-alcoholic drinks. But then again, you, can, you can't go in and police what people are wearing at that party. I yeah. have uh, an acquaintance of mine. He has to clear of fetish events because he gets triggered by cigar smoke and leather smell. Try try engaging with your fetish if that is a trigger for drug taking. Oh, that is a tough one, yeah. Yeah, so anything can be a trigger. Me standing in the toilets, getting to a cubicle was a trigger for me. <laughs> because I knew what I would normally do in that cubicle. <laughs> and people don't think about that. The most mundane things can trigger me. I had a long period, I, I'm not going to mention where I work, but we have a map over Hampstead Heath at work. Uh, and seeing that map triggered me because I've used drugs on Hampstead Heath. Yeah. So it, it's the weirdest things that can trigger you and set you off. I mean, what I'm really happy about is I think maybe a lot of people can take a page out of the book of some of the US event organizers, you know, that will still... Um, you know, in the convention spaces that they do in hotels, they will always have on the schedule some kind of uh, AA or 12-step uh, meetup or a sober, you know, sober social or sober meetup. And it's something that I know that you've talked to me about doing quite a number of times during Fetish Week. Um, yes. So I'll put it here now as well. You start thinking about it now, about organizing a real clear fetish social during Fetish Week at some point, And we yeah, will get that. We will get that into the schedule for you. I think it's important that we have it and that we also let people know that this there is going to be a space for them to come and sit down and, you know, talk with other like-minded people on this level. Well, before pandemic, I, I as you know, I organized sober socials, fetish socials under the hashtag going in dry. Um, haha. <laughs> but, Talk about uh, triggers. Yeah. And, oh, we just need a little bit of spit. Uh, but because of the pandemic, of course, I haven't been able to do any of that. And I'm, yeah. I'm kind of hoping um, if, um, uh, well, Fetish Week is my goal is to come back as a sober social. And if, if God willing, um, maybe even a sober play party of some sort. I just don't know how that would work. But that well, is we are already putting the schedule together. So let's start talking about that ASAP. Mm -hmm. Okay, so maybe just a few more thoughts before we start to wind down a little bit. Mm -hmm. There's a few little questions for you. Let's see how maybe how quickly you can answer them for me. Where can someone find out more information about Real Clear Fetish? Well, we are Real Clear Fetish is a group on Facebook. 
So if you search real clear fetish, it will pop up. Um, there to gain access, you have to answer three questions. Um, and, um, I'm the moderator. So I'll, I'll, it's yes and no questions. It's just around, do you respect people who are in recovery and so on and so forth? Um, but you just answer those questions and I'll let you in. Um, you can reach me on, uh, well, the group is also, uh, I have a group Instagram slash my own Instagram for fetish. Uh, which is all called, also called Real Clear Fetish. Um, and I'm also on Twitter, Real Clear Fetish. Um, as mentioned earlier, you were on my podcast or my Instagram Live a couple of weeks back, um, which is also um, on YouTube and re-edited versions. Uh, so you can watch the previous episodes on there, which are also now being reissued as proper podcast episodes over the next coming weeks, two episodes a week. But of course, they are recorded quite back in 2020. But now they're being reissued as audio files as well. So, And I'm also on email, uh, realclearfetish at gmail.com. Fabulous. And can you, Kelp, give me your final thoughts on being clear-headed and kinky? It's amazing. Um, being clear-headed and... Uh, and well, it just means that you have your wits about you because we see time and time again, if you're not clear-headed, that's when you hurt yourself. I'm not saying that you can't have a drink and I'm not saying you shouldn't do drugs. That's not for me to tell you. But it is definitely when you are clear-headed and because there is always a question of consent, boundaries, um, and they need to be very clear in a play setting. Um and it's just really, really important. I definitely get much more enjoyment out of my fetish now. I definitely remember when my drug addiction wasn't intertwined with my fetish, was on the underground, on the way to back street, and I was rubbing my legs. I was in leather jeans at the time. And that feeling was just like, yes, it's back. I can enjoy it again. I can enjoy it for what I'm, why I'm wearing it and not what I'm going to do later. Um, but if you need a little drink to make you relax, fine. I have no issue with that. That's not, that's not for me to tell you what to do. And, and definitely not. If anyone comes away from this podcast after listening and thinking I'm lifting fingers at people and it's like wagging at them, it's like, you shouldn't be doing this. That's not what I'm about. I am also very much an advocate of um, maintenance and um, education and safe practices and so on. I think a lot of people, when they think of someone who's sober or clear-headed, they might be completely anti-everything. It's like, no, it's because it didn't work for me. Doesn't necessarily doesn't mean everyone's going to end up in my situation. But I will definitely go, if you're going to try this, this is what can happen. And you need to be mindful of that. I think we're all going to have a give a lot more thought about what kind of fetish life or kink experiences we want to have. You know, there is a constant flow of new people coming into the scene, other people falling out of love with it. You know, some people will reach a point where they need to get to the next level. And sometimes they might take 
uh, a bit more extreme measures to achieve uh, sexual pleasure or gratification, especially when it comes to kink and fetish. So our experiences within the scene and the people we interact with will frequently change. Um, but I want people to ask themselves, you know, just how open minded are you? It's the question that we ask and people say all the time, oh, I'm quite open minded, but what exactly does that mean? And what I'm not saying is that any one of you absolutely have to agree with someone else's choices. We all make different choices, but there is something about being able to understand why people might make the choices they make, why they make different choices to yours, and letting them go through those motions in their own time. I also want us to think about how the choices we make don't just impact our personal sex lives, our personal day-to-day -day lives. Um, the kinds of interactions we have with other people, friends, family, sexual partners, or whatever, but also how it impacts on the wider fetish community and what we want our fetish community to look like. You know, what do we want people to um, to see us as? How do we want to be perceived, you know, as kinksters, especially those of us that have got platforms? It's something we should think about. Um, so what does real clear fetish or real clear play mean to you? This is a question I'm asking to our listeners. And just how much respect do we have as, as a fetish community for people that may choose to play sober? It's something I've thought about, and I'm hoping that the discussion today has also made you think much more about that question. Let us say thank you to our wonderful guest, Ralph, Viking in London. Thank you for joining us, Ralph. Thank you very much for having me. And to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. See you soon.